Welcome to the first Nygaard Series podcast, where our intent will be to promote an introspective look at various topics in education through conversations with experts in the field who will do their part to provide a unique insight into the best practices, refined ideologies, and pertinent content knowledge related to a given topic. Our goal for this series is to amplify the voices of those who are leading important work and inspiring sustainable change in their communities. This is a podcast that highlights short and direct stories from effective leaders relating personal experience to educationally relevant content. This podcast shows how leaders lean in and do the work. I'm Whitney Luther, a current Butler EPPSP Group 38 student and a co-host for today's conversation. And I'm Matt Molitor, a high-ability teacher in the MSD of Wayne Township, also a member of Butler's EPPSP Group 38 and the other co-host for this conversation. Welcome to Butler University EPPSP is the Nygaard Series podcast, season one, episode one. In today's conversation, we will explore equity in education, specifically through the lens of practicing building administrator, researcher, and consultant, Dr. Denisha Murph. And I'd like to introduce Dr. Murph. Dr. Murph is an administrator, an educator, writer, adjunct professor, and consultant, and a relentless advocate for equitable educational opportunities for all students. She has spent 14 years as an elementary school principal. She's also served in the role and capacity as an assistant principal, an elementary school teacher, most of which were done in a large metropolitan school district in the city of Indianapolis. So Dr. Murph, we're going to start off by allowing you to take us on your journey and, and share with us how your lens has been shaped on the topic of equity. So we heard about just the stopping points in your journey um, as an educator in education and as that relentless advocate. Based on those experiences, would, would you share with us your definition of equity? Well, again, thank you so much for having me. And I would love to share that definition with you. For me, I really feel I really believe that education is the great equalizer. It opens up doors and opportunities and not everyone has the same opportunities in education. So for me, when I think about what is equity in society or in education, it's having equitable access. It's having equitable opportunities. It's being able to have obstacles and even those systemic structures that exist, having those eliminated and removed so that each child has the opportunity to be the best that they can be. They can see themselves in different ways. They can see themselves outside of just their home environment or where they live at that point. They can see themselves being a rocket scientist if that's what they wanna be. And I think that in education, because we are a reflection of society, we like to pigeonhole people and put them where we think they should be. But to be an equitable person in education and provide those opportunities, you have to let children see that they can bring their most authentic self to school every single day and really reach for the stars to be all that they can be. And, and that's one in, in your work, in your book, and in the presentation you shared with us, you spoke about one of those essential elements for the culturally responsive learning is having an expectation, having and keeping that expectation quite high. Um, so you spoke about that great equalizer understanding that you need to find ways to balance the scales to provide that equitable access, um, removing obstacles. So in your experience, you found ways to implement that in your, in your building, in your school, or in your classroom way back when, when you were, when you were a teacher. 
Um, so when we think about those three things, and that's what your definition of equity has been predicated upon, um, let's look at your expertise, which is focused around the pedagogical practices, which support culturally responsive instruction and creating that equitable environment for learners. So when you're putting these things into place or, or you're thinking about yourself in your current position as a consultant and as a building level administrator and as an advocate, where does this work have to begin at the building level for you of, of implementing and instituting those institutional practices that are, are, are equitable? Well, the first step is you have to really focus on what I call the head and the heart work. Because this, first of all, has to be a work that comes from your heart. You know, we'll see data and we'll say data doesn't lie and the numbers, the numbers tell us this, but we'll see the data and we'll come up with excuses about why children are underperforming, why children um, continue to have a gap in their learning. But the thing is we put too much pressure on children and we put too much pressure on blaming the parents or the community. When well, we really need to take a hard look at our hearts and then our head. When you deal with heart work, we have to investigate those implicit biases. Everyone has bias. And all of that that takes place in the world, no matter how we want to disagree with this, that comes into the schoolhouse. The adults bring it in, the children bring it in. And so I mentioned one thing about having high expectations for all students. As teachers, we do want to believe in our heads that all children can learn, but we put limits on that because we put labels on certain students. We believe that this group can really achieve at a high level, but this group can achieve, but they have so many obstacles in their life. You know, we're lucky if they can just, you know, pass the class. That is not having high expectations for children. We talk about our curriculum, we talk about our instruction, but we always come with that excuse. And don't get me wrong, there are things that do impact students, but the grand scale that we see of the achievement gap, there's no excuse. That was mentioned as the educational debt that must be repaid. And we have to focus on how do we repay that debt. And so for me, when I left the classroom, my eyes were opened. I was like, the disparities were unbelievable. I couldn't believe some of the discipline referrals. I couldn't believe some of the students that missed out on GT and high ability coursework. I couldn't believe some of just the statements that were said about children. And so for me with my staff, we begin with, I give you the knowledge because you have to have that head that knowledge in your head about what best practices are to meet the needs of all students. But you also have to investigate what's in your heart. What are the things that you truly believe that need to be dismantled so that you can work with children, especially children of color. And so in our building, we had to start with that. I always talk about time, resources, and support. And I give all three of those pieces. But you can do all those things, but if you never truly believe in your heart that all children can learn, it's not gonna matter you're literally just going through the motions. So that was huge for us. And then we had to be committed to, there's no opting out in this work. You don't get to be a member in this building and not participate in this learning. It cannot happen. So everyone has a responsibility. Everyone has actionable steps for implementation. And then also, I don't wait for buy-in. If we wait, while we're waiting for buy-in, children are suffering. They're losing their education. They're losing out on their years of learning. And so opting out is not a choice for us here, which to some people might sound really harsh, but you could wait 10 years for a staff member to buy in. And every year there are children being harmed. 
And I, I think that's a key point because what is the number one priority? It's those kids and we can't sit around while someone decides that it's relevant or necessary or taking the time to slowly acclimate. I mean, it, it, if you're providing the time, the resource and the support, that teacher should have everything that they need in their corner to be able to get that. And I mean, the motivation is there, the kids, right? That That's it. So yep. you've got everything that you need. And, and I think that taking that step back and doing that head and that heart work is so essential. I think about the head and the heart work too. Once you've kind of gotten that established and you're not waiting for people to buy into that, I love hearing that. Um, would you tell us more about the actions or practices that have succeeded in providing sustainable change, advocating for equity, whether that's in your building or in your community? Well, one thing that has been very important is making sure that we look at what are these culturally responsive practices that have been successful meeting the needs of students. And so here in our building, we have teachers that have volunteered to go through extra steps to be those model classrooms. And we have what we call laboratory classroom observations. Now they're not observations where it's formal for the teacher. This teacher has volunteered to open up their room and demonstrate what those practices look like. During my dissertation work, we were able, well, I was able to find a rubric that hit so many powerful points. It went from the instructional practices to critical consciousness to the discourse that's involved in a, in a lesson. And we're able to identify from that rubric what is a culturally responsive practices, practice and what is a non-culturally responsive practice. And that was eye-opening. My staff was able to see there are some things that we are doing that are considered CRP. But there are some other things that I missed over here that I could easily incorporate in my classroom and dive into those deeper relationships and getting to know my students at a deeper level. And so to give teachers that time to go into classrooms, observe one of their peers who volunteered for it, to rate what they saw, and then we come back together as a team. And if someone gave this, this teacher a two in this category, but somebody else gave them a four, we're able to come together and have that common knowledge and understanding. Why'd you give them a two? Why did you give them a four? Is it really a two? Is it really a four? Maybe it's a three. And so to have that debrief session has been powerful. And it's really opened their eyes up so they can see what it looks like. But we're very adamant by saying it's going to be different every year. You won't just master these skills and then you're done. This is an ever evolving process. And if you're committed as a teacher to be a lifelong learner, you're going to really embrace that work. We always say we're not just checking things off a list. We're looking at how are we truly impacting lives. So those observations, those debrief sessions, they have truly been very powerful for us and allowed our conversations to go much deeper than they would normally. And, and personally, I've been a part of instructional rounds where we're looking at, you know, a, a certain math strategy or a reading strategy, but to, to take that and be able to do that with, you know, the classroom culture and classroom environment, that's, that's such an amazing way to support something that I think is often overlooked. How do we create classroom environment? How do we watch experts or, or go into the, go back into the, that lab or go back into that learning environment? And so I think that says something, a, a, a testament to the culture that you created at your building. And I think that has to go back to all that head and that heart work that you start with, with ensuring that people see the whys, they have the hows from the time and resources and supports that you're providing them. I just want to come and be a part of that. I want to see what oh, that looks nice. like. Join that lab classroom. Yes. I think that's something that that 
needs to be seen, needs to be shared, and in, in all buildings, especially in, in a, a district where diversity is so high and needs are so high in, for different reasons. Um, and the fact that you have that rubric, which is tangible and a, and a measurable tool that people can walk in and has a standard set of expectations where different eyeballs can look for the same things, but maybe see things differently leading into that conversation that what, what a practical tool what a, that's really neat it's been wonderful too because the teachers always want to see their writing afterwards and then they've been in very you know encouraged by the self-reflection process of oh i probably could have done this a little bit different so i think it's been powerful for everyone involved um because they're able to get that feedback and it's immediate feedback and then seeing how they have been a part of the work you know, being a part of that team um, has been very instrumental because they even lead book studies now uh, for the entire staff. But they've taken the charge. They've been excited about it. They've been very enthusiastic about it. But I think it has really changed things here because people do want to see, well, what is she talking about? What does this look like? And it's helped us to go to the next level. And, and just pushing each other forward in those yes. conversations has to be so, so beneficial. All right, as we think about these specific steps, we, you mentioned one specific thing in the, the lab classrooms and those, those rounds that your teachers are doing. Are there other practical steps that a building leader would need to consider or a classroom leader, a team leader would need to consider um, as advocates for equity in education, whether that's in our classroom in that small microcosm or at a building level or at our at a district level so are there any steps along the way that either are between that head and that heart work and those those classroom visits or after those that that are that are, need to be put into place considered practice be made aware of to make well, sure this sustained this was very instrumental to come from the um, it came from the equity team so we were having our building level equity team meeting and we we're talking about what are our action steps? What do we think we need to do next to go to the next level as a building? And it was so amazing because the team came up with peer accountability. And I'm like, oh, well, tell me a little bit more about that. And they said, there are things that people would never say in front of you, Dr. Murph, because you're the leader, you're their supervisor. But there are people who may still have those conversations that they should not be having about children with a very deficit mindset. It is up to us as the staff to hold each other accountable for our words and our actions. That will take our school to the absolute next level. We all know that people slip and say things that they shouldn't say, or they don't even just slip, they just say it. And we have to be courageous enough to call them on the carpet about what they just said. Because no matter what you do, they're not gonna say it in front of you but they might say that in front of one of us. And I thought for a staff member to bring that up and then have the entire team just say, that is true. That should be one of our next steps. We have to hold each other accountable for our words and for our actions, because that'll help us to continuously learn and grow. There are times for you to be able to vent, but it's really how you shape that conversation. Are you saying it as a negative? Or are you saying it that you need help with this area? And so I was really very proud of them. And I've seen a huge shift because those those are courageous conversations. You know, when you're in a building, you become like family with your grade team. And we know there's conversations that we sometimes ignore from family members 
But they said we have to be courageous in our community, but we have to really be courageous as well here. Uh, courageous to share it and courageous to receive it. And I think yes. that stems back to that that uh, creating of the culture, that willingness to be vulnerable and keeping that priority at the front of your mind, which is making it about the kids. Yes. Dr. Murph, as you think about leading this work of courageous conversations or now building a culture in your building where people are willing and even saying, we need to have this accountability with one another. We need to call out these things. If you're thinking back to early on in your leadership, thinking about our audience of educational leaders, what was that, that piece of advice or that thing you wish you would have asked early on or as a leader who now is sustaining this work? What's kind of that thing you're like, you know what, if I would have known this early on, it would have probably helped in this process sooner or um, kind of talk through what might have been helpful for you. Well, see, that's interesting because in this work at the time, uh, when I started to do this, let's just say everyone was not supportive, okay? There were people that thought we didn't need to have these conversations. Our school is fine, but I couldn't let it go. I just could not. So I had to develop a very thick skin in the very beginning, knowing that this was going to be used at times against me. Um, there were people who they wanted me out of here because we don't need this conversation. But it's like, no, we do. We might have good scores, but our gap is horrible. Like, and I'm seeing the write-ups. I'm seeing across the building what it looks like. And so I would tell people, if they're beginning this journey as a school leader, you need to have a support system. You need to have those open and honest conversations with your leadership so they understand where you are what you're trying to do, what the data is sharing. And people will be cautioned to slow down. You know, they don't, people don't like to rock the boat. So there were things I tried that I would consider baby steps in the very beginning, but they didn't get us far at all. It was like we were just constantly spinning our wheels. And so I would say, get a great support system, be very transparent with your leadership so that they understand, they can see why you're doing what you're doing, ask for help. If there are workshops or if there are people that will come in, I would ask for district people to come in and help us lead um, some of our work. And that was very beneficial because they saw it wasn't just me. There were other people who could come alongside and help. Um, but the biggest thing is the advice is don't give up. Keep going. Keep pushing. Um, because our kids deserve it. They have a right to a high quality education. And there are some people who... They want to do things the way they've always done it. So I had a couple of years that were really, really rough. Like it was rough. Um, it was challenging. There were days where I thought, oh my goodness, how can I keep this up? Um, it weighed on my spirit heavily, but I knew that I had to keep up the fight, keep doing the work. Um, what did John Lewis say? Good trouble. That's what he called it. And that's what I had to remind myself of constantly, that I'm doing this for the kids. I'm doing this for families and I'm doing it to make our staff better. So there were all there were three parts of this entire puzzle because we had parents that wanted it and they'd be in my office all the time. Um, we had students that would say, well, this isn't right. I mean, kids could see it. And then you had staff members. There were some that really wanted to do it, but they were a small percentage. And then others were like, no. So eventually they saw this is the way that we're going to keep going. We are going to get this work done. We're not going back to the kids we used to have, which it was like, I guess, this dream that some people wanted. 
I was just blessed to have the kids we were currently serving. To me, it was a blessing and an honor. So helping them change that mind shift. But they've got to be ready to, um, I mean, it sounds bad, but you got to be ready to cause a little trouble because people like the status quo. But when I say if I can sleep at night because I've done what's best for the children, then I'm good. I'm totally good because we've had our education and now it's time for them to get theirs. And since we've had our education, we've realized things that need to change, you know, yep. updates and evolutions that need to take place. Absolutely. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned one thing about success, a measure of success, and it's, it's so much more than pass rate. That's just determining success through you know, one lens. So if we look at it as more so like, all right, it's not just a pass rate. It's not just a percentage. It's not just what gets us that letter grade, but the gaps that are, that are present in underlying levels of data for you, if it's eliminating gaps or while maintaining those high success rates, what else, what other essential elements are there which determine success besides those um, quantitative scores? Well, I really think there are people when, you know, before COVID, we would have guests that would come in, whether it's an author's visit or, you know, a speaker in a classroom or just a family. And they would walk in and say, wow, it feels wonderful in here. I get such a good feeling. Now, at first, you know, you're like, oh, okay. This is how it always feels. You know, that's how I always think. Um, but they say, we've been to many schools but we come in here and we just feel a warmth and a sense of welcome. That's what we really go for. We wanna make sure that when you look in our building, um, you see faces, diverse faces. You see a diverse student group. You see things around you that welcome all children and you feel like you're at home. Because for many students, you're here in our school building for more waking hours than you are actually at home. So this needs to feel like home. I think when children have conversations and they tell you things like they love coming to school or um, I can wait to get back from break, you know, that's a big deal. And not because they're necessarily from um, an impoverished background. We have children that are middle-class students that are just as excited to come back here and not because home is horrible, but because they actually love being here with us. I believe you need to love on children. These are little guys and they deserve, deserve all the love and the warmth that we can give them. I tell people that, you know, I have three or three children of my own. And I always say, if it's not good enough for my own children, it's not good enough for anyone's child to have to experience and be a part of. So when I look at them, I look at them like they're my kids. And we have a very homey feel. We say we're like the mamas, daddies, grandmas, that's how we make them feel when they're in this building. So I think those pieces are very important. You know, there were some times where we had a terrible letter grade. The Department of Ed will come in and they're like, wow, you have some really good things in place. This isn't an F school. And I'm like, well, according to the data, but that hurts because you put so much into your school. Now it wasn't excuse because we did get those scores up, trust me. But when they walk in, when families walk in, they feel that warmth. We've had people that have continued to bring their children here from the east side of Indianapolis. They're like, my kids won't go anywhere else. I was teaching my class and one of the um, students, she said, oh, 
yes, I heard about your school. People love your school. And I kind of looked at her. I was like, oh, really? Okay, that's wonderful. Yeah, I have some friends. Now, everyone might not love our school, but I know that overall we have uh, what we consider a very warm, nurturing, and loving environment for our children. Because I feel like no um, powerful learning can take place unless kids feel safe and loved on when they come to school. And, and those are the elements you talk about with the, the essential elements for the culturally responsive learning environment. Whether, you know, you, you mentioned earlier the high expectations, they've got that motivation to learn, to be a part of, of, the, of the school building. And that's built on the relationship building that you just mentioned, right? So all of those essential elements are there. And that, that I think the testament of people from all over the city wanting to come to your school, that shows what, what Westlake is all about and what the, what the staff have to offer, what the environment yeah. is like. Um, that's something special. That's something to really be proud of. Thank you. I love our staff. They, they go above and beyond for our students and they dive into this work. I mean, they're willing to push themselves to the next level to give our kids what they deserve. Dr. Murph, as we think about the culture and the climate that you've created at Westlake and you've cultivated, both looking at that head and that heart work, what's one thing that you're really exploring now as it relates to your work? You've created this space, you've gotten your team on board, you're doing um, observation walkthroughs and you're having those peer-to-peer -peer conversations. Here are those courageous conversations that we're gonna have. What's kind of next for you and your team and your learning? Well, the goal now is to continue to develop leaders and making sure people understand that I'm not saying that means you want to be a principal, just your teacher leadership. Because to me, the legacy that I would love to leave here at Westlake is that our school remains culturally responsive, whether I'm here or I'm not here. To me, that's the true definition of a legacy. So I want to make sure that everyone is equipped to be able to lead that work. So if I am over here and I'm not right here, can we have like the whole staff, would they feel equipped to lead that work? And so what we've really done is going past just the equity team and past just the leadership team and identified more individuals that want to be a part of this work to help teach their peers and support their peers, um, just to be there for them as we continue to, to learn and grow together. Because like I said before, this is never done. Like you will always, there will always be something new to learn and something new to share with other people. So my goal right now is to continue to develop that leadership across our building so that there's no hesitation that if ever I wasn't here, I want this work to continue because it's just too important to, to go away just because the leader went somewhere. I think that sustainability is everyone's goal. They want to leave a legacy behind that keeps going where, where your work is still felt. Um, so as we're thinking about building the capacity for those to lead, as and as folks are listening and digesting all the information that you've shared, if you want to allow people to springboard onto this work and continue their work and their development and their investigation into this, this topic, can you provide one recommendation for something that they should read and or one person that they need to follow out there that's also doing work. And you can feel free to promote your book, Culturally Responsive Pedagogy, Promising Practices for African-American Male Students, because it, it, is, it is practical, it is applicable, and it is, it is on the nose with the shifts that need to be taking place 
Thank you. I'm just smiling. So you gave me a plug in. Thank you. That was, I call that a work of heart because I've been every last word of it. Um, so yes, that is definitely a book that you can purchase, use, reach out to me for any questions. Um, but I'm also doing a book study right now with my staff, Cultivating Genius by Dr. Goldie Mohammed. That is taking us to the next level in our work. Um, this book has been so powerful. Our discussions have been so rich so far this school year. Listening to people who normally would not have even spoken up, they're sharing, they're sharing their thoughts, they're sharing things they could try in the classroom. But she's identified four layers and I love the four layers. I mean, from criticality to identity, to skills, um, to intellect, just pulling those pieces in um, has been just so instrumental for our staff. And a person you can follow you can follow her and or you can follow also Dr. Bettina Love. She has done some amazing work with abolitionist education frameworks. Um, so those are two things that have really been powerful for us here. And again, this book study has just, it's just opened up some, some doors, some light bulbs have been going off. I have been so excited. And it's awesome because the team's leading it. And so I'm just listening and chiming in every now and then. But it's just made my heart, it's just blessed my heart so much to see them doing this work and the, the energy that they have. Even though everything is virtual, they have planned such great activities and people are just chiming in. It's been beautiful. I'm excited now, as you can tell. I'm still like, <laughs> but it's been wonderful. I'm proud of them. I'm oh, proud. That's so exciting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Thank you, Dr. Murph, for your time and sharing your experience and your expertise with us as you lead culturally responsive pedagogy practices and equipping leaders in your building as your role as a building administrator. We just really appreciate your time and value your experience and your scholarship as you ensure equity and education in your building and in your community. So thank you so much for joining us on the NIGARD series podcast today. Thank you very much. We totally appreciate your time, your insight, and your perspective. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was truly my pleasure. This was a wonderful time to talk with both of you. To learn more about Dr. Murph and the work she's doing in education, seek out information regarding her book, Culturally Responsive Pedagogy, Promising Practices for African-American Male Students. You can find more information on her and the work she's doing at Murph Consulting Group's website www.murphconsultinggroup.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The Butler University's EPPSP, the Nygaard series podcast, would like to thank Butler University's College of Education and EPPSP program director, Dr. Deborah Lefbider. A special thanks to Will Rogers, EPPSP Group 39, for composing and performing today's music. And thanks to Ethan Kuhn, EPPSP Group 38, for editing the podcast series. For additional podcast episodes, subscribe to anchor.fm backslash butler-eppsp. Thank you for joining us.